0: Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on.
1: Let's open it with a word of prayer again. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come and hear from your word, knowing that it is not just an interesting, insightful, inspiring piece of literature, but the very words of the living God that give life to the dead, that bring hope and despair, that um, give us something that's worth laying down our lives for. So please, Father of all, speak. May your word be unleashed in our hearts. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So maybe 10 years ago, uh, there was a really popular YouTube video uh, that was called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Um, It was a college student in Texas. It was basically him giving a spoken word poem, and that was the name of it. It was Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And I I actually looked it up. It's still there. It has over 35 million views. So it it was a very popular video. I remember it was all over Facebook at that time, and people were commenting on it, and the gist of it was that um, Christianity is not just a bunch of meaningless rules and kind of you know procedures or, or rote formulas we go through the motions, but it's primarily about a relationship with Jesus. And so you may have heard the same theme said stuff like you know uh, Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship. That, that's kind of the the idea of it. And there's there's a lot in there to agree with. We would agree that a you know, vital relationship with Christ that affects our hearts that. Uh, impacts the whole person is, is, is necessary for true Christianity. But uh, the wording, the way we're phrasing it is where I would have some differences. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor in London 50 years ago, uh, he talked about it in a different way. The way he described it was it's not, it's not uh, uh, putting religion against you know, a relationship with Christ. The distinction there is actually between true religion and false religion. Uh, Christianity has always been a religion in the sense that it has had institutional structures from the very beginning. Jesus called apostles. He appointed them, and he gave them a unique authority. It was not a flat organization in the sense that you know everyone was equal to everyone else in terms of roles and, and, and responsibilities. He gave apostles unique authority to go out and write scripture. And then the apostles uh, appointed elders and deacons. And my point is, from the very beginning, Christianity has always been a religion. It's been an institution. So the problem there is not that it's a religion or it's not that it's an institution. The problem is between true religion and false religion. It's between a religion that actually affects the whole heart and mind and soul of a person that leads to transformation versus a religion that is wrote. rote and formulaic and nominal. It doesn't actually affect us. And this distinction is between true religion and false religion has always existed. It exists today. I mean, we've, we've probably met Christians who claim to be Christian, but yet their life shows no evidence of it. It's just a Christianity in name only. But it also existed 2,000 years ago when Jesus was alive. And, and it should give us some pause to consider the fact that What brought out Jesus' harshest criticisms, his greatest rebukes, it was not the kind of, you know, some kind of pagan immoral excess. What brought forth his greatest rebuke was actually false religion, and the false religion that was so prevalent in the Judaism of the day. Now, the text this morning that we looked at, Jesus contrasts, again, what I'm calling false religion with true religion. And I'm just going to. give you the theme for this morning. I don't normally do this, but this is basically what Jesus says through this text, as he contrasts false religion and true religion. He says, first, false religion is marked by a divided heart, which leads to hypocrisy. On the other hand, true religion is marked by a wholehearted devotion to God that leads to genuine sacrifice. I'm gonna read that again. Again, false religion is marked by a divided heart, and that leads to hypocrisy. True religion, on other hand, is marked by a wholehearted devotion to God, and at least a genuine sacrifice. And so our structure this morning is very simple. We only have two points. First point is false religion, and the second point is going to be true religion. Let's, again, just situate ourselves in the context of Luke. Uh, We just finished up Jesus' disputations, his arguments and debates with the religious leaders. The kind of simmering tension that has existed between Jesus and the religious leaders for all of Luke finally bursts out in the open. And it's open warfare, and the religious leaders, they throw everything they have at Jesus to try to discredit him. They attack him personally. They attack his politics. They attack his theology. And in the end, none of it works. And again and again and again, there are, there's evidences for those who have eyes to see that the one that they are debating with is no ordinary man. And Jesus gives them opportunities to reconsider. Maybe he is who he says he is. But at the end of the day, the religious leaders, they're not convinced And we find out today why that is the case. Because at the end of the day, their problem with Jesus was not an intellectual disagreement. Their problem was that they were subscribing to a false religion. Their their, their convictions that they claimed were contradicted by the way they lived. It was a sham, it was a fraud. At the end of the day, that's why they rejected Jesus. So let's go ahead and look at the first part of this. Again, our first point in false religion. Verses 45 to 47, follow along with me. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So I uh, just want to so get a sense again of the setting, what's going on. Again, this seems to come right after these debates that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. This is kind of his, his parting remarks. He's, he's silenced them. They have nothing more to say. So Jesus kind of sums it up. And he finishes it with a rebuke. Now before we look at this rebuke and try to understand what Jesus is saying, I just want to make one observation and that Jesus makes this rebuke publicly, right? It says, he, it says that he says it to his disciples, but he says it in the hearing of everyone. I mean, he's in the temple, imagine if this was a temple, just, you know, multiply it by 10 in terms of size, and he speaks to his disciples, but he's speaking loudly as anyone who wants who can hear. This is kind of what the trolls on the internet do when they want to, like, get a lot of clicks and they post stuff that's very inflammatory. And you know you're gonna get a whole lot of, you know, interaction, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus is not a provocateur. He's not someone who just, you know, annoys people for the sake of of causing controversy. Everything Jesus says is intentional. And so, Jesus here, I mean, he's any bridges that may have remained between him and the religious leaders, he's burning them through this public rebuke. He's poking the beast. He's doing it for a reason. And here's the thing, again, because Jesus is not a provocateur, because he doesn't just stir up controversy for the sake of controversy, what this should tell us right up front is whatever Jesus is about to say is something that he's deeply concerned about. Enough that, again, he's willing to cause controversy over it. So let's find out what that is. Let's look at the specifics of the rebukes. So first, he rebukes these scribes. Again, scribes were like the Pharisees, and he's calling out a specific group of people, he says, the scribes who act like this. But just so we know up front, this seems to have been a pretty good description of all the religious leaders, of the Sadducees, of, of, of the priests, of the Pharisees, of, of, of the um, Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish chief priests. But anyway, he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now At that time, that would have been a sign of wealth, right? If, if, uh, before the days of factories when everything was mass produced, everything was handmade. There's labor intensive. It costs a lot of money to have a long flowing robe. There's more work that goes into it. And actually the dyes would have been very expensive. And so if you could have a long flowing robe that's very richly colored, I mean, you could only afford that if you had money. And we don't think of clothing as status symbols. I mean, maybe you can spot designer jeans. I can't. I'm like, they may be Levi's. They might be $500 designer jeans. I don't know. But one thing that is a status symbol in our world is cars, right? Like I, when I went to school, there was a local high school that was in a very affluent suburb. And if you went to that student parking lot, like you'd see Lexuses and BMWs and Audis, 16 year old kids. It's like who in the right mind would give their kid a BMW? These are, you know, this is a status, it's a, it's a sign of status, of wealth. And this is what the the scribes are doing, they're walk, they're, they, they, they love this kind of ostens, ostentatious status symbols. The second, he calls them out for their, their liking greetings in the marketplace. Now, this is not like a friendly, hey, neighbor, how are you doing? It's, it's a different type of greeting. In fact, Matthew, when he describes this, kind of gets up, he includes some more detail. He says, and they love greetings in the marketplaces and being called a rabbi by others. They loved the, the prestige that came with being clergy. They loved people showing them honor and, and deference because they were part of the clergy. Next, he calls them out for liking the best seats. That's pretty self explanatory. They like to be the VIP, the guest of honor, the, show, the, the star of the show. And then lastly, they would devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, the gist of that is that they were financially extorting widows, or vulner, you know, the most vulnerable people in that society. It's not, it doesn't tell us how, there's speculation. Oftentimes, a temple would care for widows, and so maybe the religious leaders were taking advantage of the widows that were entrusted to them. Uh, a lot of times, they would call in religious leaders to handle kind of wills and estates, because they were the only ones who knew how to read and write, you know, in a, in a, in a time when very, very few people were literate. And maybe they were, you know, just charging exorbitant amounts to widows as they helped them settle their estates. There's various ways they could have been extorting them, but the point is that they were, they were financially extorting vulnerable people. And then they would go on to show their piety through these long and flowery prayers which they would make in public. And after this, Jesus finishes with a warning. He tells them despite their exalted social and religious status, their condemnation would be greater. Would be worse than ordinary. On the day of judgment, despite the fact that everyone thought they were so pious, it was going to go worse for them than your average person who had rejected God. So that's, that's the, the rebuke. How would we sum up what's going on here? I mean, there's four different rebukes. How can we sum up what Jesus is really we're condemning them for, we're rebuking them for? What's the main problem here? And the problem with these religious leaders that they had divided hearts, which eventually led to hypocrisy. Let's, and we see that Jesus is focusing on their divided hearts because what he emphasizes is not necessarily the action, it's what they want. Look at it, he says, beware of the scribes who like, they desire to walk around with long robes, they like you know, being seen as wealthy and affluent, as, they, they desire this, they love greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus focuses on what the desires of these, of these clergy are, of these priests, these, these uh, scribes. They have divided hearts. And the problem with that is that God had called all his people to love him alone. And they weren't just ordinary people, but they were the religious leaders who were supposed to, by their own example, show and demonstrate in their lives what it looks like to love God Alone. Again, I mean, this was God's great desire for his people is that of all the things they did, most importantly, that they would love God with whole hearts, with all of themselves. The commandment in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's a constant theme that God keeps coming back to Israel and saying love me i care far more that you love me with all your heart than that you offer me a million sacrifices i want your hearts it's all throughout the old testament i mean you just let's just look at one psalm psalm 119 just in one psalm see this theme repeated in verse 2 blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart verse 10 with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law with my whole heart. The problem with these religious leaders is that somewhere along the line, they stopped loving God with their whole heart and they began to love the things of this world. They began to enjoy the Prestige that came with their position. They began to enjoy having money. They began to enjoy the comforts of their lives, and their hearts became divided. And the thing about divided hearts that are so dangerous, and I think this is again one of the reasons why Jesus is urgent in this text, is because they're very subtle. And it's hard to tell when our hearts are, are divided, it's hard to tell when others' hearts are divided. Christianity Today had a podcast in 2021 that came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you have probably listened to it, but it cataloged the rise and fall of a, a large megachurch out in Seattle. Uh, in 2015, it had 15,000 members across multiple campuses, led by a, a charismatic, highly gifted, and highly controversial pastor named Mark Driscoll. In the matter of two weeks, everything imploded the church literally ceased, ceased to exist overnight. This dramatic end, again, to a, a large church that had many ministries, and so he kind of catalogs what happened, and what ended up happening is the, the pastor was just guilty of all kinds of domineering and tyrannical behavior and abusive leadership, just habitual again and again and again, and eventually it caught up to them. But what was interesting about the podcast, because again, everyone focuses on the end, and, and frankly, just how bad Mark Driscoll had gotten. But what was interesting in the podcast was that he brought out the real fruit that came in those first five years as a church plant got started and people are coming to faith in Christ. And they showed how Mark Driscoll at that point was, was, actually would do stuff that was incredibly sacrificial. I mean, having members in his, in his church live in his basement for months when they didn't have a home or giving his own paycheck to a member in his church who had financial need. The point is it started off well, it started off with Mark Driscoll loving God and loving his people, but somewhere along that line his heart became divided. And he began loving numbers and metrics and platforms and his reach and his his popularity and, and led to all kinds of hypocrisy and the consequences were incredibly serious. And the question is, okay, when did that happen? When did his heart When did Mark go from this guy who would give up his paycheck to a member in his church because he needed it to to where he got to it? Like, when did that happen? um, No one knows. It's so subtle to go from loving God with our whole hearts to all of a sudden, no, we're loving many things and we're loving God with a divided heart. This is what the religious leaders were doing. They were loving God but loving him with a divided heart and loving many other things in competition to God. And this in their lives, and this always inevitably leads to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is just speaking one way, living another. And again, here are the shepherds of Israel who were tasked with teaching Israel about God, studying His scriptures, knowing God, teaching Israel about God, helping them follow God. They were tasked with, with being the shepherds of Israel, caring for the people of Israel, and they were devouring their own sheep taking advantage of the the widows and, and those who are most vulnerable. Just hypocrisy, speaking one way, living another. But of course, their greatest hypocrisy was claiming to know God, to be close to him, when it was all just a posture. It was all just posturing. It was a fraud. It was a sham. It was false religion. It looked really devout on the outside, but on the inside it was divided, and it produced rotten fruit, produced hypocrisy, Now, as I'm I'm talking about this, there may be something that's bothering you. And And what that might be is the realization that, well, if we're honest, all of us love God with divided hearts in some way or other. None of us wake up, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, love God wholly, with no competitions. None of us make all of our life decisions based out of our our sheer love for God. All of us, to some extent, are are guilty of false religion. It's just a fact. So where's the good news? If Christianity is good news, where is the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, did love God with his whole heart. He loved God, his father, to such an extent that God could speak over his son at his baptism and say, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God could look over Christ. He, he, he could look into the depths of Jesus' soul and say, I'm, I'm pleased with you. You love me with all your heart. And again and again and again the Gospels is demonstrated how Jesus loved his father first and foremost and lived his life perfectly in view of that. Now here's the thing. I still haven't given you good news yet. Because if all I'm saying is that that's an example for us, that's not good news. That's just another law for us to groan under. Because we'll never live up to that. Here's the good news. Colossians 1.27. To them... God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this ministry, this mystery, which is Christ in you. This mystery which is Christ in you. Christ is not our example. He is Christ in us, the perfect son of God who lived every waking moment, every sleeping moment in perfect obedience and perfect devotion is not just an example out there, but he's actually come in us, Theologians will often talk about the alien righteousness of Christ. That, that when we confess our sin and place our trust in Christ, Christ gives us his righteousness and we are justified. We're, we're made right before God. And so when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the perfect life of Christ. But it's an alien righteousness. It's not ours, it's Christ's. But he also brings a transformative righteousness which is that we begin to more and more love God with whole hearts, we who are divided beyond repair. Christ begins to help us to love with whole hearts. And the way he does that is Christ in you. If you want to love God wholeheartedly, there's no seven step religious plan I can give you, like do these things, you know, pray in this direction, say these words. There's no seven step plan I can give you the key is be with Jesus. That the more you empty yourself of your, of your independence and self-reliance and self-worth and allow yourself to be an empty vessel for Christ to fill you, Christ in you, the more that happens, well, you'll start loving God with all your heart. If you want to love God, walk with Jesus. No matter what it takes, that we might be an empty vessel and he will fill us with himself and then we will begin to walk in true religion. So Jesus rebukes the false religion and the scribes, but now he turns to what true religion looks like. This is verses, sorry, 21 verses one to four, second point, true religion. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put all she had to live on. So again, just getting the setting this, in the same way seems to follow again quickly after. Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders has ended, but he's still in the temple. And so he's able to kind of sit there and watch as the people would come and give their gifts. These probably would have been fr- what we call freewill offerings, so they weren't part of like a temple tax. They weren't a requirement. But these would have been gifts that would have gone towards the upkeep of the temple ministry. So the temple, one of their main ministries was animal sacrifices. If you're sacrificing multiple animals a day, that gets costly after a while. Someone's got to pay for that. So these free will gifts would go towards that, go towards upkeeping a large temple building, go towards you know, providing for the priests who would minister in the temple. Honestly, it would be a lot like a church tithe. And when you tithe, that goes towards uh, the ministries of the church, the salaries of the pastors, towards upkeeping the building. It would have been very similar. And so Jesus is there; he's watching them come and income some very wealthy people. And there would have been kind of—we're um, not one hundred percent sure what it would have looked like—but some kind of offering boxes. And as they came, they'd give their generous gifts. Maybe you could hear the gold coins thudding in the bottom, and the priest would nod appreciatively because these are paying the bills. And everyone's very impressed with all this money they're giving, and then they leave. And then comes this poor widow, who puts in two copper coins. It's so little, you probably couldn't even hear them hit the ground. No one notices, except Jesus. And Jesus is not just notice it, he's struck by it. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he, he actually calls his disciples over. He was like, whoa, 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 guys, get over here, we gotta look at this. He's so struck by what just happened, And if the scribes were an example of false religion, this widow is an example, a profound example of true religion. And the reason Jesus is struck by this, he explains in verse four. So again, they all contributed. He's talking about the wealthy people who gave. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus is in no way criticizing the wealthy who gave. He's not saying they did anything wrong. There's no sense of that in this passage. His point is is that they they also haven't done anything noteworthy. (laughs) Everyone is impressed by how much money they gave, but Jesus is saying, look, they only gave out of their abundance, out of their excess. But this poor widow, she gave out of her need. The idea is literally this woman took what she needed for her basic necessities, for food, water, shelter, shelter, clothing, and that's what she gave. She had nothing left. She gave everything. And it's remarkable because she gives so sacrificially. This is an example of true religion because she loved God with her whole heart. And the way it was demonstrated is that she gave everything. This is an example of true religion. Now, we, we just got to be real with one another and ask ourselves, what do we do with this passage I mean, let's, let's be clear with what Jesus is doing. He's saying, don't be like the scribes. Don't be divided, half-hearted hypocrites. Be like this woman. Is he saying we, likewise, if we want to have true religion, must give everything we have away? Do we have to take vows of poverty? Now, I think just because we are American Christians and we are phenomenally wealthy, all of us historically, uh, comparatively to other parts of the world, I think it's probably good for us to sit under this and, and, and feel the tension in this and not move on too quickly. And to, and, and to remember that there have been Christians throughout the history of the church who have taken this completely seriously. So you've heard of Francis of Assisi and the entire religious order that was founded after him, the Franciscans. Part of their of their order is you have to make a vow of poverty. And they see that as fulfilling Jesus Example here. What do we do with this? Now, I'm just going to warn you, the answer is subtle. I'm not going to try to be subtle for subtlety's sake, but I I, I want to know what Jesus means and how it applies to us, And, and I'm trying to understand that and explain it as best as I can. But again, to understand what Jesus is saying here is we have to come back to the principle. What is true religion? True religion is first and foremost loving God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And from that flows the effects. We can't put the, heart, the horse before the cart. True religion is not giving all your money away. That's an effect. True religion is loving God with your whole heart, and that's what this widow does, and that looks like in her life, giving everything she has. Now, I don't... I'm going to lay my cards out here. I don't think vows of poverty are normative for Christians. Obviously. Because I have money. But the reason I think that is what if this widow, it seems like this widow, if she doesn't have a spouse, she doesn't have kids, what if this was a parent who had little kids at home who were going to be hungry because this parent gave away all the money at this grand gesture? Would that be loving God with her whole heart to so renege on that responsibility, as a parent? Well, no. If you're a parent with little ones who are looking to you for support, loving God with your whole heart is still the principle, but it may look a little differently. And so again, the, the point is, she's loving God with her whole heart, and man, is it shown in a profound, sacrificial way. That's the principle that we want to take from this. But nonetheless, this sets a high bar a high, this sorry, this sets the bar higher in terms of how we handle our finances. You may have heard of someone named Andy Crouch. He's kind of a Christian thinker, intellectual. And I heard him quoted once saying, look, if you want to be a radical Christian in America, you don't need to be a Mother Teresa and move to India and start up orphanages for the poor. You don't need to be a Billy Graham and spend all your days preaching the gospel. Like, if you want to be radical, unlike any other Christian you know, You have to do two things. In America, this is true in America. Two things. Give away 10% of your your income and don't watch TV. And if you do those two things, you will not meet anyone else like you who is a Christian in America. Now, his whole thing on TV, I think he's helpful in that. That's a a totally side point. But his point on giving away 10% being radical, he's right. I found one survey that found this is among evangelical churches. So this is people who, who profess a faith in Jesus Christ to attend church regularly. The median giving, median is, um, means the middle amount. So if you had 100 people giving, the person you know, in the very middle, so half the people are giving more, half people are giving less. It's a better way to think about it than average. The median giving for evangelicals is 1% of your income. And so if you give 10%, yeah. You're giving 10 times What the average Christian gives, that's radical. Right? But the the problem with that is that 10% isn't radical. Which should be a clue to us that there's something fundamentally broken with how we American Christians think about our money and how we use our money. True religion is wholehearted love of God, wholehearted devotion of God, which means all our money is God's. We love him with all our money, not 1%, not 10%, 100%. It's all his. And he gives it to us as a stewardship. It's not ours, it's the Lord's. He's given it to us. We might use it for his kingdom, for his purposes, to honor and glorify him. And so I don't think Jesus is calling everyone to make a vow of poverty, although he may be. But he is raising the bar for us. 10% is not radical. If we give 10% of our income, that's not a sign that we are radical compared to 100% of what this widow did. I think many of us probably could give more away if we were willing to sacrifice. And that's what this is calling us to. If you were at our members' meeting two weeks ago, I said I wasn't going to have a sermon on giving But this is the text, you know? When you preach expositionally, it's here. So I know this is like we get, I get weird when people talk about my money. So don't shoot the messenger. It's all in the text, I'm just trying to explain it. But if you're feeling conviction, like yeah, wow, I probably could give more. I wanna give some advice. At Vine Street, what we're all about is not grand gestures and flash in the pan discipleship. We're about a long obedience in the same direction. And so if, if, if you're at a place where you really don't give regularly, going from that to giving half your income every month is probably not realistic. Again, I don't want you to do this for one month. I want this to be a lifetime of generosity and giving. And so if, if you're not used to giving regularly, the next step for you in terms of faithfulness and obedience might just be giving every month, even if it's just a couple dollars. The point isn't that God needs our money. The point is how are we using it as a, as a means of worship if you give 1% to 2% of your income, maybe the step next up is giving 3 to 4%, and so on and so forth. What's that next small step for you to love God with your whole heart? And that obviously will include how we spend our money. Not all of us are called to give everything away, but this text does set a high bar for us. Now, I want to I finish. So that's, that's true religion, loving God with our whole heart. But I want to finish with a, with a question And I think this question underlies a lot of our hesitancy to love God with our whole heart, to sacrifice for God, to to take risks for Christ. I think this question underlies a lot of that hesitancy. And the question is, okay, but is God, is he worth it? If I take risks and I sacrifice and I suffer because of my discipleship, is God worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And the amazing thing of this text, this, this, this widow is giving us a testimony, and she's saying, yes, it is. We don't know what, this, what happens to this widow. We see her make this offering, but we don't know when she eats next. We don't know if she sleeps on the streets that night. We don't know, we don't, we don't know the suffering that she may have gone through because of her act of love towards God. We don't know. but this woman's, this widow's testimony to us is yes. Despite whatever suffering she knows she may experience, she's saying fellowship with God is worth it, even if it costs you everything. This is not a perfect analogy, but I do think it's helpful. So I'm a parent, I have three kids. Many of you know my kids, Caleb, Addie, and James. Five, three, one. And if you ask me, is, is, is having kids easy, I'd say, no. If you told me, does it, has it cost you? I'd say, well, yes. If you asked me, has it even cost you some measure of suffering at times? I would say, yes. And then if you asked me, okay, so then is it worth it? I would tell you, oh, yes. A hundred times, yes. Every day of the week, yes. Being a parent is not easy. It costs you so much financially, emotionally, in every way possible. But none of that compares to the joy and the privilege of being dad to Caleb and James and Addie. It just doesn't compare. That's what the widow is telling us. That's what She's preaching to us through the example of her life. She's saying, look, knowing Christ is so worth it. It's better than even knowing if I'm going to eat tonight. It's better than knowing if I'm going to have a place to lay my head tonight. Will true religion cost you? Will loving God for your whole heart cost you? Oh, it will. Will it lead to suffering? Most likely. Is it worth it? Yes. Because there's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. And there's no other name more beautiful than the name of our Lord. And there's no other presence more sweet than his there's no one else that can bring rest to restless souls like ours. And so as your, as your pastor, with whatever authority God may have given me to, to try to teach and teach you and study and, and, and with whatever authority that might be, I, I want to tell you, whatever Christ may ask of you today or this week or this month or this year, and it may be a lot, whatever he may ask of you, he is worth it because he is the one, he is the only one who has the words of eternal life. He alone is life. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we want to love you with undivided hearts, and we confess that our hearts are prone towards division. We find other things so attractive often. Call us to yourself. Christ, fill us with yourself that we might love our Father with whole hearts the way you did. Give us the understanding that there's nothing we could give up that would compare to the wonder of life with God himself, to the wonder of the grace we've been shown in in the crucifixion of your Son. Again, help us to know that not by the hearing of the ears, but by the seeing of the eyes, by what we know and have experienced ourselves. We ask this in expectation, knowing that you are God who answers. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.